Section 22 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10 Movements in the Churches, Part 2. In truth, it is not difficult now to understand how the elder Newman's mind became drawn toward the ancient church which won him at last we can see from his own candid account of his early sentiments how profoundly mystical was his intellectual nature and how long before he was conscious of any such tendency he was drawn toward the very symbolisms of the catholic church pascal's early and unexplained mastery of mathematical problems which no one had taught him is not more suggestive in its way than those early drawings of catholic symbols and devices which done in his childhood newman says surprised and were inexplicable to him when he came on them in years long after no place could be better fitted to encourage and develop this tendency to mysticism in a thoughtful mind than oxford with all its noble memories of scholars and of priests with its picturesque and poetic surroundings and its never-fading mediaevalism newman lived in the past his spirit was with medieval england his thoughts were of a time when one church took charge of the souls of a whole united devoted people and stood as the guide and authority appointed for them by heaven he thought of such a time until first he believed in it as a thing of the past and next came to have faith in the possibility of its restoration as a thing of the present and the future when once he had come to this point the rest followed as by lot god wot no creature could for a moment suppose that the ideal church was to be found in the english establishment submitted as it was to state-made doctrine and to the decision of the lord chancellor who might be an infidel or a free liver the question which cardinal manning tells us he asked himself years after at the time of the gorham case must often have presented itself to the mind of newman suppose all the bishops of the church of england should decide unanimously on any question of doctrine would any one receive the decision as infallible of course not such is not the genius or the principle of the english church the church of england has no pretension to be considered the infallible guide of the people in matters even of doctrine were she seriously to put forward any such pretension it would be rejected with contempt by the common mind of the nation we are not discussing questions of dogma or the rival claims of churches here we are merely pointing out that to a man with newman's idea of a church the church of england could not long afford a home that very logical tendency which in the mind of newman as of that of pascal contended for supremacy with the tendency to devotion and mysticism only impelled him more rigorously on his way he could not put up with compromises and convince himself that he ought to be convinced he dragged every compromise and every doctrine into the light and insisted on knowing exactly what it amounted to and what it meant to say the doctrines and compromises of his own church did not satisfy him there are minds which in this condition of bewilderment might have been content to find no footing so solid as doubt newman had not a mind of that class 
he could not believe in a world without a church or a church without what he saw to be inspiration and accordingly he threw his whole soul energy genius and fame into the cause of the church of rome this however did not come all at once we are anticipating by a few years the passing over of dr newman cardinal manning and others to the ancient church it is clear that newman was not himself conscious for a long time of the manner in which he was being drawn surely though not quickly in the direction of rome he used to be accused at one time of having remained a conscious roman catholic in the english church labouring to make new converts apart from his own calm assurances and from the singularly pure and candid nature of the man there are reasons enough to render such a charge absurd indeed that simple and childish conception of human nature which assumes that a man must always see the logical consequences of certain admissions or inquiries beforehand because all men see them afterwards is rather confusing and out of place when we are considering such a crisis of thought and feeling as that which took place in oxford and such men as those who were principally concerned in it for the present it is enough to say that the object of that movement was to raise the church of england from apathy from dull easy-going acquiescence from the perfunctory discharge of formal duties and to quicken her again with the spirit of a priesthood to arouse her to the living work spiritual and physical of an ecclesiastical sovereignty the impulse overshot itself in some cases and was misdirected in others it proved a failure on the whole as to its definite aims and it sometimes left behind it only the ashes of a barren symbolism but in its source it was generous beneficent and noble and it is hard to believe that there has not been throughout the church of england on the whole a higher spirit at work since the famous oxford movement began still greater was the practical importance at least in defined results of the movement which went on in scotland about the same time a fortnight before the decision of the heads of houses at oxford on dr newman's tract lord aberdeen announced in the house of lords that he did not see his way to do anything in particular with regard to the dissensions in the church of scotland he had tried a measure he said the year before and half the church of scotland liked it and the other half denounced it and the government opposed it and he therefore had nothing further to suggest in the matter the perplexity of lord aberdeen only faintly typified the perplexity of the ministry lord melbourne was about the last man in the world likely to have any sympathy with the spirit which animated the scottish reformers or any notion of how to get out of the difficulty which the whole question presented differing as they did in so many other points there was one central resemblance between the movement in the kirk of scotland and that which was going on in the church of england in both cases alike the effort of the reforming party was to emancipate the church from the control of the state in matters involving religious doctrine and duty in scotland was soon to be presented the spectacle of a great secession from an established church not because the seceders objected to the principle of a church but because they held that the establishment was not faithful enough to its mission as a church 
one of the seceders pithily explained the position of the controversy when he said that he and his fellows were leaving the kirk of scotland not because she was too churchy but because she was not churchy enough the case was briefly this during the reign of queen anne an act was passed which took from the church courts in scotland the free choice as to the appointment of pastors by subjecting the power of the presbytery to the control and interference of the law courts harley bolingbroke and swift not one of whom cared a rush about the supposed sanctity of an ecclesiastical appointment were the authors of this compromise which was exactly of the kind that sensible men of the world everywhere might be supposed likely to accept and approve in an immense number of scotch parishes the minister was nominated by a lay patron and if the presbytery found nothing to condemn in him as to life literature and doctrine they were compelled to appoint him however unwelcome he might be to the parishioners now it is obvious that a man might have a blameless character sound religious views and an excellent education and nevertheless be totally unfitted to undertake the charge of a scottish parish the southwark congregation who appreciate and delight in the ministrations of mr spurgeon might very well be excused if they objected to having a perfectly moral charles honeyman even though his religious opinions were identical with those of their favourite forced upon them at the will of some aristocratic lay patron the effect of the power conferred on the law courts and the patron was simply in a great number of cases to send families away from the church of scotland and into voluntaryism the scotch people are above all others impatient of any attempt to force on them the services of unacceptable ministers men clung to the national church as long as it was national that is as long as it represented and protected the sacred claims of a deeply religious people dissent or rather voluntaryism began to make a progress in scotland that alarmed thoughtful churchmen to get over the difficulty the general assembly the highest ecclesiastical court in scotland and likewise a sort of church parliament declared that a veto on the nomination of the pastor should be exercised by the congregation in accordance with a fundamental law of the church that no pastor should be intruded on any congregation contrary to the will of the people the veto act as this declaration was called worked well enough for a short time and the highest legal authorities declared it not incompatible with the act of queen anne but it diminished far too seriously the power of the lay patron to be accepted without a struggle in the celebrated Auchterarder case, the patron won a victory over the church in the courts of law, for having presented a minister whose appointment was vetoed by the congregation, he obtained an order from the civil courts deciding that the presbytery must take him on trial, in obedience with the act of Queen Anne, as he was qualified by life, literature, and doctrine this question however was easily settled by the general assembly of the church they left to the patron's nominee his stipend and his house and took no further notice of him they did not recognize him as one of their pastors but he might have if he would the manse and the money which the civil courts had declared to be his they merely appealed to the legislature to do something which might make the civil law in harmony 
with the principles of the church a more serious question however presently arose this was the famous strathbogie case which brought the authority of the church and that of the state into irreconcilable conflict a minister had been nominated in the parish of marnock who was so unacceptable to the congregation that two hundred and sixty-one out of three hundred heads of families objected to his appointment the general assembly directed the presbytery of strathbogie in which the parish lay to reject the minister mr edwards the presbytery had long been noted for its leaning toward the claims of the civil power and it very reluctantly obeyed the command of the highest authority and ruling body of the church another minister was appointed to the parish mr edwards fought the question out in the civil court and obtained an interdict against the new appointment and a decision that the presbytery was bound to take himself on trial seven members constituting the majority of the presbytery determined without consulting the general assembly to obey the civil power and they admitted mr edwards on trial the seven were brought before the bar of the general assembly and by an overwhelming majority were condemned to be deposed from their places in the ministry their parishes were declared vacant a more complete antagonism between church and state is not possible to imagine the church expelled from its ministry seven men for having obeyed the command of the civil laws it was on the motion of dr chalmers that the seven ministers were deposed dr chalmers became the head of the movement which was destined within two years from the time we are now surveying to cause the disruption of the ancient kirk of scotland no man could be better fitted for the task of leadership in such a movement he was beyond comparison the foremost man in the scottish church he was the greatest pulpit orator in scotland or indeed in great britain as a scientific writer both on astronomy and on political economy he had made a great mark from having been in his earlier days the minister of an obscure scottish village congregation he had suddenly sprung into fame he was the lion of any city which he happened to visit if he preached in london the church was crowded with the leaders of politics science and fashion eager to hear him the effect he produced in england is all the more surprising seeing that he spoke in the broadest scottish accent conceivable and as one admirer admits mispronounced almost every word we have already quoted what mr gladstone said about the style of dr newman let us cite also what he says about dr chalmers i have heard said mr gladstone dr chalmers preach and lecture being a man of scotch blood i am very much attached to scotland and like even the scotch accent but not the scotch accent of dr chalmers undoubtedly the accent of dr chalmers in preaching and delivery was a considerable impediment to his success but notwithstanding all that it was overborne by the power of the man in preaching overborne by his power which melted into harmony with all the adjuncts and incidents of the man as a whole so much so that although i would have said that the accent of dr chalmers was distasteful yet in dr chalmers himself i would not have had it altered in the smallest degree chalmers spoke with a massive eloquence in keeping with his powerful frame and his broad brow and his commanding presence 
his speeches were a strenuous blending of argument and emotion they appealed at once to the strong common sense and to the deep religious convictions of his scottish audiences his whole soul was in his work as a leader of religious movements he cared little or nothing for any popularity or fame that he might have won some strong and characteristic words of his own have told us what he thought of passing renown he called it a popularity which rifles home of its sweets and by elevating a man above his fellows places him in a region of desolation where he stands a conspicuous mark for the shafts of malice envy and detraction a popularity which with its head among storms and its feet on the treacherous quicksands has nothing to lull the agonies of its tottering existence but the hosannas of a driveling generation there is no reason to doubt that these were chalmers genuine sentiments and scarcely any man of his time had come into so sudden and great an endowment of popularity the reader of to-day must not look for adequate illustration of the genius and the influence of chalmers in his published works these do indeed show him to have been a strong reasoner and a man of original mind but they do not show the chalmers of scottish controversy that chalmers must be studied through the traces lying all around of his influence upon the mind and the history of the scottish people the free church of scotland is his monument he did not make that church it was not the work of one man or strictly speaking of one generation it grew naturally out of the inevitable struggle between church and state but chalmers did more than any other man to decide the moment and the manner of its coming into existence and its success is his best monument for we may anticipate a little in this instance as in that of the oxford movement and mention at once the fact that on may eighteenth eighteen forty three some five hundred ministers of the church of scotland under the leadership of dr chalmers seceded from the old kirk and set about to form the free church the government of sir robert peel had made a weak effort at compromise by legislative enactment but had declined to introduce any legislation which should free the kirk of scotland from the control of the civil courts and there was no course for those who held the views of dr chalmers but to withdraw from the church which admitted that claim of state control opinions may differ as to the necessity the propriety of the secession as to its effects upon the history and the character of the scottish people since that time but there can be no difference of opinion as to the spirit of self-sacrifice in which the step was taken five hundred ministers on that memorable day went deliberately forth from their positions of comfort and honour from home and competence to meet an uncertain and a perilous future with perhaps poverty and failure to be the final result of their enterprise and with misconstruction and misrepresentation to make the bitter bread of poverty more bitter still in these pages we have nothing to do with the merits of religious controversies and it is no part of our concern to consider even the social and political effects produced upon scotland by this great secession but we need not withhold our admiration from the men who risked and suffered so much in the cause of what they believed to be their church's true rights 
and we are bound to give this admiration as cordially to the poor and nameless ministers the men of the rank and file about whose doings history so little concerns herself as to the leaders like chalmers who whether they sought it or not found fame shining on their path of self-sacrifice the history of Scotland is illustrated by many great national deeds. No deed it tells of surpasses in dignity and in moral grandeur that secession, to cite the words of the protest, from an establishment which we loved and prized, through interference with conscience, the dishonour done to Christ's crown, and the rejection of his sole and supreme authority, as king in his church. End of section 22